We are back with Beyond the Block. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah, we're back. Welcome back. Derek, how's your week been? Things are good. Things are good. I love getting to study the scriptures and talk about them with you. This is quite, and I enjoy that as well. That's easily one of my highlights in the week is getting to talk scriptures with Derek. And uh, we're going to be in the Come Follow Me today. We're going to be in Galatians, the whole book of Galatians. And yowzers, man, I am really... I. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't read the whole book of Galatians before, but like both reading it for the first time and like all the way through and also, you know, reading it with the eyes that I have now, as opposed to back when I studied it in seminary as a high schooler, Mm -hmm. like it's just totally blowing my mind how many wonderful nuggets of truth are in there. So I'm... Yeah, for over 15 years, Galatians has been one of my uh, go-to texts in the New Testament. There are others, but... Yeah, <laughs> I know Galatians fairly well. We yeah, know. it makes sense. Like after I got to read and study it, it made sense as to uh, why you would know it so well. And I'm uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. You got anything uh, exciting going for your weekend? Well, I'm going to try to buy a car today. Oh, if yeah. I, can. <laughs> I need a car. Yeah, man. So we'll see how that works. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to go see Boys to Men tonight. Ooh, yeah. nice. I have never seen them live in my entire life, and I'm finally going to see them in Rhode Island tonight because nice. they're just at like one of the casinos down there, and I got me like a fifth row seat. So wow. I'm hoping that I make enough noise that maybe they'll let me come on stage and sing Can You Stand the Rain with them because, you know, oh. closed mouths don't get fed. So I'm <laughs> I'm planning on making a fool of myself in front of my musical idols. Oh. We'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Okay. But uh, that is going to be more or less my weekend like as soon as we get done here i'm probably going to go home and take a pre-turn up nap and then prepare for uh my evening of boys to menning because you know we got state conference tomorrow and lord knows i'm going to need to get in bed a little earlier tonight but i'm going to be in rhode island probably for a long time like these r&b groups have this nasty habit of starting their they say they're going to start their show at eight but they got like anywhere between three and seven openers going on and they probably won't come on stage till like 9.30 or 10, and then I'm going to be up all late. I'm not looking forward to that, but, yeah, it's going to be a good weekend, though. State conference is going to be spiritually fed, going to be musically fed, and I'm excited for it. That's good. Um, I have state conference again also tomorrow, and I uh-huh. heard there's a special session at 8 a.m. tomorrow for people who joined the church or returned to the church in the last five years, which oh, wow. I'm one of those. I joined about four years ago. So I'm going to go to that and see what happens. That'll be interesting. That will be interesting. I'm wondering what they're, uh, yeah, I wonder what they're going to be trying to do there. Like, do have they, have they indicated what the objective of this particular session is no, at all? No, I don't know. I hope that it's focused somewhat on inclusion and incorporation and retention and okay. meeting the needs of people who are new or returning because that's something that we don't talk about every week. Yeah. So yeah. it's good to talk about them and, and get, get that demographic together. <laughs> There's lots of things we don't talk about every week, which is why you and I are here. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I definitely got to report on that next week. I'm very interested to hear what goes on at that session. So, uh, anyway, with that, Derek, how do you feel about diving right into the news? Sure. My first thing that I had for news was this announcement that Merriam Webster, the dictionary people, decided to, uh, they have enough evidence and documentation to add singular they for non-binary individuals to the dictionary. Okay. And this does a number of things. 
One is people now can't complain that, well, it's not in the dictionary. As if you that know, was as, a yeah. legitimate reason right. for why they would not respect somebody's pronoun. Right. But continue. And the other thing is these major dictionaries are descriptive in nature. What they're doing is documenting how people actually use the language. Right. They're not doing something prescriptive here saying what should be. They actually just document and record what people are using. And that means that there's enough people using singular they that it warrants uh, being included as a standard part of the English language from here on. Mm, gotcha. And I should add that there's a one in, I'm, I think I'm the first scholar to point out that the Book of Mormon uses singular they. Isn't that interesting? I've never in, noticed that. In Helaman 13, I think it is, it mm -hmm. says something like, none hideth up their treasures except the righteous. Now, none is singular, hideth is a singular verb. And then it says, none hideth their treasures. Not his treasures, but their treasures. So there's one ex instance um, that uh, the Book of Mormon uses singular they. So if God does it, so can we. <laughs> All right. There we go. That's what God would do. God would respect the pronoun. So mm -hmm. very good, Derek. Anything else you want to say about that before we move to the other story? Nope, that's it. All right, cool. Uh, this other story I also want to uh, be brief and touching upon, but it's kind of a big deal, even though it's kind of like one of those, well, duh, that's that's the way it should have been. And uh, that story is that just yesterday or two days ago, I think. No, it was yesterday. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security finally recognized white nationalism as a major terror threat. And uh, really, my initial reaction was, on the one hand, this is a big deal for the Department of Homeland Security to do. On the other hand, I'm just like, y'all really should have done this 400 years ago. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or however long the Department of Homeland Security has been around. Yeah, since uh, 2001, right after, basically after 9-11. Yeah, so there you go. And, uh, you know, white nationalism was definitely on the rise back then. So, yeah, that's basically all we got to know about it. We're officially recognizing white supremacist terror as a major national security threat in the U.S. And, uh, yeah, the news, it definitely comes as a relief for a lot of national security and extremism e experts. So uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing what that's going to look like, how exactly we're going to acknowledge that threat. Because, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge the threat. It's another thing to really, um, you know, dive in and do something about it. I don't think we got too much about in terms of what are the specifics of how we're going to address that. But the fact that uh, the DHS has actually come out and said, we're acknowledging this and we're going to do something about it. That is pretty significant, and I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I think that's important. We, sh we should uh, see where this goes and see how it pans out and what influence this has in what we research, where we focus our energy as a people. Mm. And I don't think it's a secret where this is, you know, coming from. Yeah. You know, we've had a series of, you know, white nationalist terror incidents in just the last few months that were, you know, demonstrably triggered by, you know, white nationalist thought. And right. I think at this point, we just really need to be honest with ourselves. And I think that's what the DHS is doing is just saying, oh, this is actually a threat to American citizenship. This is actually killing a lot more people than this other terrorism we're focusing on. And the fact that America is really willing to acknowledge that, or at the very least, the Department of Homeland Security is willing to acknowledge that is a huge validation to the American people, particularly the people of color and the queer people who have been pointing out pointing this very thing out for ever so uh yeah we'll we'll see where that goes yeah that just reminds me i 
I didn't plan to talk about this, but I saw this, um, and I saw this online, so I don't know if it's true or not. Okay. So, <laughs> but I didn't fact check it, and I didn't research it. But apparently, there was one airplane that was grounded because two Muslim people who knew each other said hello to each other on the airplane, and they decided to cancel the flight. Did you hear about this? I did hear about this. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing ever. It really is. First of all, because terrorists, if they're actual terrorists, they're not going to they're not going to do that. They're not going to draw attention to they're themselves. Not gonna, they're not going to draw attention. But but the other reason why it's dumb is this manifest Islamophobia that just treats all Muslims as terrorists until proven innocent. Yeah. And that is not cool. That disrupts unnecessarily disrupts their life, the life of of all the passengers. Without any evidence, this yeah. is not these profiling incidents are completely not at all appropriate or valid or humane. All right. So, yeah, I did just fact check the story. It looks like it. I mean, it's all it's basically hearsay. It's these two two Muslim men uh, saying that this flight got canceled because of that. But, you know, it really isn't the first time that anything like this has happened. Yeah. Like I was thinking of post 9-11, uh, Sweeney Murdy, like the sportscaster. He's of uh, he's of Middle Eastern descent. No, he's actually Indian. And uh, he talks about this time where he gets on a flight and, you know, he really has to go to the bathroom, but he can't get out of line. So he just goes directly to a seat, rushes there, drops his bag and then takes his, the rest of his stuff to the back of the bathroom. And everybody just turns around and freaks out because <gasps> this Indian guy just went to the bathroom and rushed there. So, you know, thankfully they didn't actually ground the flight, but, you know. Uh, yeah. Whoever it is, TSA actually had to come in and de-escalate whatever panic was going on in that plane simply because an Indian guy had to pee. You know what I'm saying? So he so, like dropped his bag and then ran away? Well, he dropped his bag and ran to the back of the plane, right. you know, yeah. and all the heads turned or whatever. But uh, oh, no. this, this isn't a singular thing. Like this is something that has happened before. Things like this have happened before. We should do that when white men do something normal. <laughs> right? Every time, uh, you know, we should now, now, now that we're the the terrorists we should uh we should have you know be highly suspect our white men honestly like i th i think i told you about this before but uh you know shortly it was after the last shooting in the string of three that we had yeah. you know a month or two ago and um you know i was sitting in church during fast and testimony meeting and a guy i didn't recognize who was in his normal people mm -hmm. clothes got up to bear his testimony and i actually panicked for about two seconds i was like yeah. looking for the nearest exits and getting ready to fight just in case it came to that but you know that's i mean that is not something i say in jest i legitimately you know on the one hand i'm legitimately afraid of what white men do or may do in a certain space but also i do kind of want to point out the absurdity of being scared of people basically existing or being friendly with other people and because of the color of their skin we freak out about yeah. it you know that's not the only incident like that that's right. happened in this past like not even in the past week um this i don't know if you saw this video uh, circulating about facebook but this white woman saw a hispanic man working you know pulling his truck out of a walmart and this white woman started freaking out because you know, simply because he looked foreign, she's called the police on him, you know, like she thought he ganked somebody's uniform to punk somebody else uh, by pretending to be a working man. But, you know, even with 
the evidence of the logo both on his truck and on his uniform and somebody in the parking lot vouching for him. This white lady still called the cops, was like, this guy doesn't look like he belongs here. He looks illegal. I'm not sure if he has a green card. She just started asking all these invasive questions about, is he in the country legally? Does he have a green card? What is he doing here? Just like this stuff isn't, it's not singular. So I got no problem believing this story about these two Muslim men saying that, you know, a flight got grounded because they simply greeted each other. You know, white folks would panic over far less than that. Yeah. So oh. this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Anyway, DHS. Um, that's the other story. And uh, finally, we really want to dive into what the big story has been this week uh, with uh, President Russell M. Nelson's BYU devotional. Now, yeah. uh During this devotional, President Nelson felt impressed to share five truths, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that we're God's children, that truth is truth, God loves all of us, that Christ appoints prophets and apostles to communicate his love and teach his laws, and finally, that we can know the truth uh, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, at face value, I feel like this needs to be said, I... It's really hard to have a problem with any of those truths. Like I have a testimony of those truths. Yeah. You know, those truths alone would make this an otherwise unremarkable talk. Right. But the reason this talk seemed to be all the buzz in the Mormon community was because of what he had to say about the LGBTQ community, particularly about the uh, about the 2015 policy change, the implementation of it and its subsequent repeal. Um, he, He did acknowledge the hurt brought on by the policies, but he also reaffirmed in the same breath, basically the, the idea of an exclusively heterosexual marriage as the, as the doctrine of God, you know, he claimed, and he claimed love to be the motivator of both the implementation and eventual repeal of, uh, of the policy. So, uh, that kind of colored how I viewed his sharing of these five truths. Derek, what, what did you pull from this? I think when you look at the way that he, unwraps each of the five truths they're all lining up to this one point yeah there's a punchline coming you can feel it as you read it he's really organizing these five truths and and deploying them in the interest of his final point about lgbt's Mm -hmm. that's you know his emphasis on truth is truth of his emphasis that god loves us and has a plan all those could be interpreted innocently or they could all be interpreted in a way that's weaponized against the livelihood of my people. Okay. And so I think you can see where he's going with all of these. Yeah, you kind of um, can. He's definitely uh, working all the way up to this. The, the whole point is, I think, uh, the whole point is to take this one point that he's trying to make about LGBTs, and then the rest of the speech is a framework in service of delivering that one point. Is that how you read the text? I didn't watch it. I just read uh-huh. the text. Honestly, like when I initially read the text and you know, this was a, you know, it was a relatively fast read. I kind of got a little sense of that. I was like, why is he sharing these five truths? And why is this the first time he's really addressing this policy? Because you got to look at the fact that he's addressing the policy change in the context of these five truths that he's choosing to share. So part of me definitely viewed uh, him sharing these five truths as a clear setup to some kind of punchline or some kind of point he's about to make about these mm-hmm. policies. Um, for example, I believe it's in his uh, third point. I'll see if I can't pull it up here. 
And what's that third point again? God loves every one of us with perfect love. God loves every one of us with perfect love. That might not be the one, but um, it's when well, he first yeah. mentions. It's when he first mentions uh, LGBT is under that point. Uh, I think it's under the point. Okay, it's actually under truth number four that the Lord Jesus Christ, whose church this is, appoints prophets and apostles to communicate his love and teach his laws. It's under point four where he finally mentions uh, the policy affecting members of the LGBTQ community. And he basically uses that truth to say, I feel that the policy was inspired. He basically used that truth to say that we received revelation to implement this policy and we also received uh, revelation to stop the policy. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but the the way the policy was implemented was a like a procedural anomaly and it was a theological anomaly. Like something mm. happened here that was really out of the norm for the way that the church normally does its business, just right. in terms of how how this came about, how it was approved, who knew it and who yeah, it was it was seems to be very much rushed in without a lot of research. Because if they had done half the research that they said they did later, they mm-hmm. never would have done this policy. It never would have happened. And that's right. what like blows my mind about this whole thing. Like you you really got to wonder, especially when people say anything negative or do anything negative with regard with regard to the queer community, how many queer folks did you consult? Cuz you know, I have a feeling that if they consulted any faithful queer members of the church, this policy never would have been right. implemented. And you've said this on the show before. You mm-hmm. quoted uh, Ayanna Presley that those people who are closest to the pain of uh, the decisions need to be closest to the power right. of right. making those decisions. And, uh, you know, this was just another one of those things where I was just like, y'all didn't really do your due diligence in consulting the very community who's this, whose lives you're going to be affecting the most powerfully. Like, not even the... Not even the um, the uh, ancient apostles, you know, made those kinds of mistakes. I mean, they may have, but yeah. we have distinct examples of them listening calling, to people, yeah. listening to people mm-hmm. on the margins, listening to people who are close to the pain, and then calling people from that same community to minister to those who were in the most pain or in the most need. And I didn't see the apostles doing that over such yeah. a significant uh, policy change. And even Jesus adjusted his policies in light of, of of marginalized people who mm-hmm. came to him. I'm thinking of the Syrophoenician woman in, yes. in Mark chapter seven. Yes. And, and I've talked about it before, so I'm not going to go over it, but basically Jesus, even Jesus is willing to listen. And I think this gets back to, we need to unpack what president Nelson means by love. Yeah. Yeah. Because he says, Oh, we love the gays. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Let's because talk about it. There's a lot of, misunderstanding of what the word love really means biblically. A lot of Latter-day Saints think of love as this emotion or affection. It's your attitude about someone, right? Mm -hmm. Your internal attitude about someone else is positive. That's what they think love is. But biblically, love isn't internal. It's all about the impact on someone. It's all about what is good for them, what are you doing to to actually make change for the better for someone that is love that's how god loved us right it right. made an impact it wasn't oh like i feel good about these people and my my children and it stops there no it doesn't stop there so i want to bring up um a really good point in philippians 1 chapter 1 verse 9 where paul is praying here he says i pray that your love might abound in more knowledge and more insight or understanding. 
I forgot exactly how it's translated. But it's so interesting how Paul connects the abundance of love with an outgrowth of knowledge yeah. and yeah. an abundance of understanding and insight and discernment, mm-hmm. however you translate that word. And a lot of people want to separate that. And so what I'm saying is you can't love people without knowing them and without knowing the impact of what you're doing on them and knowing right. what's what what actually it's it's kind of like if if someone is deathly allergic to peanuts and mm-hmm. I give them a peanut butter sandwich because I love them and I don't know that they're allergic to peanuts what I did is not an act of love. Mm-hmm. As even if I love peanut butter, which I do, and I out of my positive emotion want to share it with them, mm-hmm. that's not love because it's not informed. Right. Love is right. always informed. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing I want to say about love. Mm-hmm. It also may be worth mentioning that uh, this just goes back to something else we've said on the show many times that impact is always greater than intent. Right. You know, exactly. it doesn't matter what the intent of your action is. Even if you do do it out of love, if it has a harmful impact, then that is something that needs to be named. That's something that needs to be acknowledged. And I want to say something else about love. Um, this comes from John chapter 15, verse 13, and it's the a really good description of love where Jesus says greater love hath no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends and what I want to do is take that not just about literally laying down your life in terms of death but the verb there for lay down is tithemi in Greek it's basically to set down or to put down okay something and literally it does mean to to lose to die right okay but we can take that sort of likening the scriptures unto ourselves as to put down your privilege, mm-hmm. your power, your in own interests, yeah. to set your own life, your own stuff aside for the benefit of someone else. That yeah. is true love. Yeah. Even up to the point of laying down your lo- life, mm-hmm. right, in death. But there's many ways that if you love someone, you're going to deny some of your own comfort, your yeah. own privilege, yeah. and your own, you're going to lay that down, right? Yeah. I love that verb. You're going to lay it down. Mm-hmm. You're going to lay all that stuff down for the benefit of someone else. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to see exactly what President Nelson laid down, right? What did he give up? What privilege or power did he give up when he instituted, well, he wasn't the one that did it himself, but when the apostles instituted the policy of November 2015. If that was truly done out of love, there would have been some sacrificial component to it. Certainly. Something of, and there wasn't, right? There wasn't anything, to my knowledge, that they did that. Now, if they would have done the self-sacrificial thing, they would have had some humility. Mm -hmm. They would have downplayed their ego and say, look, we need to do better for these people, and it's going to cost us something in our our public legitimacy to say that we've messed up, but that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do when he says, lay down your life. Yeah. Lay down your life. That's what love is. There's no greater love than denying your own privilege and, hmm. and your own life and your own interest for the benefit of someone else. That's exactly mm. how Christ loved us. And I love how Paul, uh, President Nelson mentions that in his talk that Father and the Father and the Son love us with infinite and perfect love. Mm-hmm. And a corollary of that is... Uh, the humans, you know, the brethren don't love us with an infinite and perfect love. Mm-hmm. Only, and, and and I'm a human too. I'm My love is not infinite or perfect. Right. So we have to, re- to, to put 
the leaders of the church in that category and say there's something limited about their love. There's something limited about their understanding. Yeah. Same with mine. There's something limited about my understanding and yeah. my love as well. So it's not uh, not so much a crit- critique, but we have to say, look, when there is a, a, a difference between what God is doing and what God is teaching and what we know of God mm-hmm. and what humans are doing, and this gets to the heart of Galatians as well. Yes, yes. We have to go with God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And um, and because our leaders aren't going to know everything. Right. And I think that's important. And it's not fair to expect them to. That's, it's not fair to yeah. hold them to these impossibly high standards of perfect love. Like they're not in that position because they're perfect beings. They're not in that position because they are God or have, you know, doubtless they have Christ-like attributes, but they're not there because they're perfect men. Yeah. And I want to point out, how that gets into truth number it within truth number four. Okay. We, a lot of people in the church say, well, you're not supposed to make your opinions known to the leaders because they know what they're doing mm-hmm. and that you're never supposed to lobby. You're never supposed to ask for change. You're never supposed to ask for revelation, you're, which is contrary to every example in the scriptures. You're yeah. all, people are always running to the prophet, even yep. in the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. People yeah. are always running to That's him and say, like they literally came up to him and said stuff like, what do I have for breakfast this day? You know, <laughs> like minor, minor that's Church. like the whole doctrine and covenants yeah, is like, revelations like, like that. Like minor, minor decisions like that of like how, where someone's going on a mission, when they should come back, all that other stuff. Yeah. That was all done through uh, uh, these revelations, right? But anyway, so a lot of people say we shouldn't lobby, but lobbying actually does create change in the church. And, I, and, and President Nelson admits that this is the case here. Here's, I'm just going to read this paragraph because it's important. Okay. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve continued to seek the Lord's guidance and to plead with him in behalf of his children who were affected by the 2015 policy. We knew that this policy created concern. They heard the concern, right? Yeah. They, we knew that this policy created concern and confusion for some and heartache for others. That's because they listened. Mm-hmm. That grieved us. Whenever the sons and daughters of God weep, for whatever reason, we weep. So our supplications to the Lord continued. Mm. And then it says, we also took note of LGBT parents who sought exemptions, uh, and those uh, exceptions were granted uh, for the the baptism of their children. And then it says, as a result of our continued supplication, we recently felt directed to adjust the policy. And I think that's that's interesting because he's basically saying there is a role, a substantive role in the divine order of things yeah. for our voices to be heard by yeah. prophets who can take our questions to the Lord. That's the whole point of a prophet. Oh, right? yeah. And people say, well, that's not you're not appropriate to, to ask questions. That's the whole point of having a prophet. Mm-hmm. Like, I know what it's like to be in a church that doesn't have living prophets. Mm. The first several decades, and I'm not going to say how many. <laughs> of my life we're in a church that doesn't have living prophets. All we mm-hmm. had was the Bible and we had to do the best we can with the Bible. Mm-hmm. We have living prophets who can go and adjust things when it's clear that that's the right thing to do. Mm. And, and I think that's a, a very, very powerful concession that president Nelson made that, that there is room for lobbying in the divine order of things, because mm-hmm. how else would they know? How else would they have the right questions? How would, else would they have the right background or understanding to even frame what they're asking of the Lord? Mm-hmm. And how else could they implement Christ-like love that lays down ego and power and privilege and life mm. for the sake of someone else? 
I want to talk a little bit about his um, analogy of the heartbeat. Okay. Because I found that very powerful. Because a lot of people will twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean, but what it actually means is very interesting. Okay. Because he talked about, um, this is in point number, truth number three. He says, in medical school, I had been taught that if one touched the beating heart, it would stop beating. However, one of the first laws we discovered, right? One of the first laws we discovered in the lab was that we, we could touch the heart of an animal without losing its heartbeat. This finding opened the door to later uncovering another law, um, and this is when you add potassium chloride to the coronary arteries, then the heart stops. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is they were taught one thing, and then we discovered by doing it, they poked the heart themselves and found out that what they had been taught, the traditions of their fathers, was not true. Mm. I think this is this actually is how truth works with God, right? Mm. We have some assumptions about stuff, and then we actually have to get there with our own fingers and poke at it and realize what we taught was wrong. Yeah. And yes, there is divine truth, but we don't know that truth perfectly, and there's stuff left for us to explore. Yeah. Because the, this truth about the heartbeat didn't come from God, right? We mm -hmm. had to discover what God's laws were there. Mm -hmm. and, and he did this by rebelling against the institutional precedent and tradition that had said the wrong thing for so mm -hmm. long. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really how this all works. And there's actually, I think that's probably the most pro-LGBT thing in this document is to say, look, <laughs> you can question received knowledge and discover for yourself that what you have been taught is wrong. Mm -hmm. And actually just by breaking open the thing itself, know what's happening. And I think that's true with queer lives. When you, when you break open our experience and touch our heartbeats, you find stuff that contradicts what you were taught. Mm -hmm. Like we can be loving and kind and our relationships can bear all of the same fruits of the spirit that straight people do. There's no, when you actually poke us, we're no different mm. than straight people, right? That is right. the big, the big reveal. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this? So, uh, well, anything in particular? Cause I have, I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. Um, so I, I really just want to, you know, again, I, I don't know if I did this earlier. I do want to give credit where credit is due to President Nelson to uh, sharing these important truths. Um, you know, I have a testimony of all of them. And, you know, I do sustain him as a, I do sustain mm, him as do a prophet. Too? Like that is. Oh, yeah, I love him. I, I'm, I have a lot of respect for him in his office. Yeah. Because his office is the, is the office that when, when it gets the thing right finally will have the power to actually do loving things for LGBT people. Certainly. And it's the same office, right? Certainly. So I respect office, and I, and I love him as a person, as an, as an individual. But that doesn't mean he's perfect. Like right, none of, right. Like and that is, nothing, and nothing in here claimed to be perfect either. He never claimed to be perfect. He never claimed to have perfect knowledge of God's plan. I mean, some people will read it, that into it, but he never actually says They it. will. And uh, this is something I wanted to uh, bring up, the fact that, uh, you know, that, that video that you sent me of uh, all the people talking about uh, President Nelson's talk, you know, you still kind of got a sense of people kind of deifying uh, the prophet, deifying the brethren. And right, something that yeah. needs to be named, you, you already said this, but, you know, the brethren are not perfect. They never claim to be. None of the ancient prophets have claimed to be. And, you know, they have, and they are entitled to, 
you know, their own opinions, their own biases, you know, the way they were raised in this world, it definitely is going to affect how they operate in their callings, including operating, even though they got certain blind spots with regards to certain populations, which is where I saw this original policy implementation coming from. But when you view it with that framework, view it through that lens of the fact that we are literally being led by men who are imperfect, that does a couple of things. Mm -hmm. One, it takes the burden off of the prophets and it takes the burden off of us to feel like we have to obey their every whim and take everything that they say yeah. seriously as doctrine. And secondly, it puts more of the responsibility on us to get our relationship right with God, our relationship right with Christ, and puts more, it gives us more power mm -hmm. to act in a way that allows us to live in a way that's congruent with Christ without putting so much emphasis on a relationship with the church, with the institution, or with the leaders of the church. So, you know, that's one thing. You know, that reminds me, uh, one of the biggest, of course, examples of this is Bruce McConkie's statement in 1978. I think about that all the time, man. Where he said, uh, forget what I said, forget what Brigham said, forget what I said. We spoke with limited knowledge and understanding, and now there's more light and truth in the world. Mm -hmm. So we need to get behind the living prophet. Now, I think that's actually an example of this John 15 laying down your privilege, because he mm -hmm. could have tried to, you know— excuse himself and say or just not say anything he could have just been silent right but he basically took a risk and said look this might put a dent in my reputation and my credibility but i need to say this mm -hmm. you know we spoke with limited knowledge and understanding mm -hmm. and that's always true right right when, when the brethren speak today decades later they're going to come back and say well we spoke with limited knowledge and understanding yeah yeah. You know, I'm I'm certain of that more than anything else in the world. Yeah. That revelation is ongoing. There is no end to truth as the If you die, if yeah, you could hide a I love that song. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's a good example here of of um Elder McConkie having humility and privileging what needs to be done, even though he wasn't perfect, like he made a lot of mistakes, right? Certainly. Like uh, Mormon doctrine, man. I think about that book a yes, lot and right. some of the things and that are in it. he said significantly racist things in he there. He did. He did. A lot of people be quoting that book all the time. Like I find people like anti-Mormons or people who were never members of the church, they would be quoting things out of Mormon doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie, things that were things that we have certainly since repealed. But, um, you know, yeah, as you said, very racist things that Bruce R. McConkie has said. And seeing some of those things that he said and then seeing him walk all that back in a statement where he pretty much acknowledges, I didn't have all the knowledge. I didn't have all the information. That is significant. That is really significant. And I would have liked to see more of that from uh, President Nelson here. Yeah. And I, th I, I want to say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fairly optimistic person. I always want to find the hope. Now, some people, even on, on my side, would, would say it's inappropriate to go through and try to look for positive things and look for hope in here because you're just um perhaps you're validating yeah you're you know. either validating the talk or you're teaching people to accommodate themselves to oppression which is not right. what i want to do correct we should never become comfortable with oppression mm -hmm. but one thing i want to point out is um his statement here finally we also clarified that homosexual immorality would be treated in the eyes of the church in the same manner as heterosexual immorality now, of course, on its face, is that's a, a very not good statement. But what's, what's the implication of this is very interesting because what this implies is that the church is in a transitional or temporary 
space. There's no way that this current status quo can be maintained indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And here's my proof for this, because when you actually take this statement literally and try to work it out, it, it will fall apart. Because it says, if, if they truly, literally, in all ways, treat homosexual immorality the same way as heterosexual immorality, what that would mean is, pretend I'm a bishop for a second. If I have a straight couple who are not married, who are about to sin together, mm-hmm. One of the first things I can do is if they really love each other and want to be together, I could say, look, let's get you married. Even if you're not ready for the temple, let's get you a civil marriage so that we can uh, so that you can have sex. Right. Uh, which really is what Paul says in First Corinthians seven. He says, well, if it's, you know, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, what he's saying is this. If we truly treat. Gay immorality, which I don't even want to call it that, the same way as straight (laughs) immorality, immorality. within the framework of the church as it exists today, if I had a gay couple who's unmarried, who's about to have sex, then if I literally treat them the same way, I would have them get married. Mm. Right? Yeah. There is no way that they can fully implement this this, uh, statement right here without full equality for LGBT people. Mm. Um. Or at least LGB. We have other issues around trans that need to be corrected. But at right. least in terms of same-sex marriage, uh, this this is uh, – I, and I find that hope because to me there's indications that this current position is not main, cannot be maintained indefinitely. There are no. so many indications of, look, they've got footholds of justice here and there that will infallibly – result in the justice of my people being delivered mm-hmm. right because no longer is this that this is not okay let's say elder packer never would have given this talk like never no right? he would not he wouldn't have even said lgbt mm-hmm. right so th- and i'm not saying oh look there's progress because you know we can't really measure progress that way you know two steps forward one step back all this other that's complicated but what i can say is that god has tentacles throughout his church and god is trying to arrange things so that there's footholds of these justices Mm -hmm. for example this major concession um of using the word using lgbt the stuff that we have claimed for ourselves our identities they're using they're saying look it's important to listen to the cries of LGBT people, which they did, and it worked. It's important to have at least some acknowledgement that that gay and straight immorality, although I want to <laughs> focus on the immorality part, but yeah. that gay and straight stuff should be in some sense treated equally. Mm-hmm. Like these are major things that um, we haven't had. We didn't even have five years ago. Right. And I think part of uh, – and then, of course, is this idea that it, that of love. I think there's no way to say that you love LGBT people while in the same breath with, condemning with that is another foothold, right? Yeah. That will invariably end up towards the deliverance of my people and new truth breaking into this world in an amazing revelation. Mm-hmm. Right. I, so I find there's there to be for me hope. Um, I'm not personally intimidated or, uh, or, or frustrated by these talks, not because I'm saying it's okay, but just because mm-hmm. I have sufficient 
defenses and privilege and independent access to to God's dignity for me, mm-hmm. right? And that actually goes back to truth number one: you are sons and daughters of daughters of God first. First, you know. I think that's about all I had to say about President Nelson's talk. I could mm-hmm. say more, but I think that's all <laughs> I want to say right now. No, that's great, man. Thank you for sharing. That is uh, that is good stuff. And I will also say that there's a re- one of the reasons I feel hope is just how quickly it went from here to there that President Nelson said some things that a lot of people just do not agree with. And I remember there's a quote by Brigham Young of how he talked about if he were to preach false doctrine from the pulpit, it would not be long before it flew from here to there that that yeah. doesn't sit well. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this is happening and that it's so acceptable, uh, generally speaking, that we can you know disagree with things that the prophet has said or point out problems in the language or po- problems of the questions left unanswered, you know, that is that is... That is significant, and uh, I really just want to, you know, raise that up a little bit in saying that, you know, the time for change, the time for more light and knowledge concerning our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, it's not far off because, you know, the way things are sitting now is generally doesn't seem to be sitting with a significant uh, portion of the LDS population. Mm -hmm. Right. That reminded me of two things that I just wanted to say real quick. One is, if you look at Bruce McConkie's framework— and how he had to, within his system, how he had to deal with Brigham Young, he actually had to say and did say that Brigham Young taught false doctrine. Like the yeah. Adam-God theory, instead of saying, well, we don't really know what, what Brigham was saying, or, you know, he just said, oh, look, you know, he's not perfect. He taught false doctrine from the pulpit, and that's, that's it. It was never canonized by the church. It's not official, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a powerful thing. That's a really bold move that, that Elder McConkie And that's uh, not the first time took. he's done that, is yeah. it? Yeah, either. Like, not yeah. the first time he's, for lack of a better phrase, thrown another yeah. apostle under oh, the bus. Yeah. You have you know? to. I think this is this is really how it all works, is every general authority is going to say s- some stuff, and some of it is going to have enduring value that's going to get quoted a hundred years later, mm-hmm. and others is not. And the stuff that gets sifted out is just going to not be official. The stuff that gets taught and retaught and, and quoted generations later, that becomes our doctrine. Yeah. Yeah, that really becomes the heart of our doctrine, uh, and so two th- two things about that is oh, let's look at the prophet Jonah. So the prophet Jonah was a true prophet. There's no doubt that he's a true prophet. He could speak to the Lord, and the Lord can talk to him, and he he got it. But but you know Jonah had his agency. Yeah, he ran the other way. When he was called to go to Nineveh and say, look, preach my gospel to the Ninevites, I want to save the Ninevites too. He went the other way. And so here's an example of a true prophet not basically saying, look, there's this other people that I don't want to include. I'm going to run the other way. Mm-hmm. And I fear that President Nelson is is stuck in a situation where he has to basically do what the prophet Jonah did. is The Lord is nudging him to include lgbt people fully and he is choosing to go the other way and that doesn't mean he's a false prophet you can be a totally true prophet and run the other way but you can be a bad prophet or you can be a (laughs) right i I don't know like i'm hesitant to use even that word as well but somebody uh online said this the other day i don't believe that president nelson is a false prophet but you know whether or not he's doing a good job is something that remains to be seen simply because this is still an issue. And I feel mm-hmm. like everything, all the alarms are ringing, like with regard to the policies affecting queer folks in the yeah. church. 
and he's not hearing them. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like that's the same with Jonah. Like the Lord, as you said, was nudging him in the proper direction. Mm -hmm. And Jonah was just like, I'm just going to ignore that until he got backed into a corner or into a whale. rather." Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I want to that that gets to like because he's a true prophet, there's there's he's teaching truth here. And one of the truths he is teaching is about God's law. Now, I love God's law. I love God's law. Like yes. well, Psalm 1, Psalm 119 is all about the the person of God loving God's law. I love God's law. Yes. And But, but we yes. have to look at how that gets deployed or weaponized. And some people are going to try to weaponize God's law against queer people. Mm-hmm. But what I'm going to do is say, if you look, mistreating someone, bullying someone, homophobia, racism, all those things are literally against God's law. Literally against literally God's against law. Literally against God's law. So why don't we put as much effort into implementing and enforcing God's law for those things? I love what Leviticus 19 verse 16 says in Hebrew. It's lo ta'amod al damreyecha. Do not stand by idly while your neighbor's blood is shed. Mm-hmm. That covers so many things around hate crime, around bullying, around suicide prevention. Yeah. If you are just sitting here, um, like the the two wicked people in the parable of the Good Samaritan, letting someone die, letting someone suffer and not bearing their burdens, you are violating God's law. This mm-hmm. is one of the most important commandments. Mm-hmm. You know, it's implicit in love your neighbor as yourself. That is God's law. So I love this. I'm not at all about watering down God's law. I'm saying, look, we got to figure out exactly how God's law applies to this situation Mm -hmm. and then live it. Oftentimes, something that I notice, though, and this is where a lot of people get uh, get lost in the difference between a prophet speaking as a prophet and between God's law is when even the prophet and, you know, we're going to see this once Mm -hmm. we get to Galatians, when the prophet acts in a way that is contrary to God's law or says something that is God's law, but is not actually God's law. You know, we don't have to talk about that right now. Like I said, I plan on talking about it once we get to Galatians. But, you know, it's not the first time that we've seen that with, you know, modern day prophets. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, um, President Nelson in his talk went and said that it was God's law that exclusively heterosexual marriage was the only thing that was acceptable to God. Which is nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture. Yeah. Nowhere in Scripture at all. But President Nelson is also not the first person to use the Scriptures or to use, quote-unquote, God's law to dispossess an entire group of people or to say something that wasn't technically God's law, yeah. wasn't technically doctrine. So I, I'm willing to extend President Nelson that grace, but I'm also... Mm-hmm. And But, you know, this is also coming from someone who has really made an effort to uh, put their relationship with Christ before their relationship with the prophet and someone who really seeks to, um, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better word, not stake my whole spiritual health yeah. on what the prophet says. You know, I had right. to learn that when I was 12 and learned about the priesthood ban. You know, that was kind mm-hmm. of my flight or flight sorry, fight or flight moment. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've had one of those moments, Derek, but you've always seemed pretty self-assured pretty much since you joined the church that uh, God does have a place for you here. And it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of when he makes that manifest through the prophets of our God. Yeah. One other important concession that, that should be pointed out is that President Nelson said, look, we know that in the United States, marriage equality is the law of the land and we're not going to resist that. There are yes. other churches that's, that that after um, 2015 said, okay, we got to resist this with everything. We've got to 
call for constitutional amendment. We've got to replace Supreme Court justice. We've got to overturn this. They're not saying that anymore. They're they they're not doing Prop Eight again. Right. Right. They're saying, look, whoops, uh, the law of the land is the law, and we're gonna we're gonna respect that. And I think that's important because that wouldn't have happened ten years ago. Right. I it think. would not have they happened ten years they ago. They would have fight it. They would have fought uh, that. I well, mean, anyway. it, did, it didn't happen 11 years ago. Like, we know how the church responded to uh, Prop 8 and the like. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, we, we have precedent for that. Yeah. So there's the church is on the move, which is which, which Exciting. is baffling <laughs> when people say, well, the church can't change. They've already changed they like changed 90 percent of the things yeah. that found, form the foundation of, of the LGBT approach mm-hmm. that the church has today. Almost all the positions undergirding this have been cleared away. Hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there's change. There's more change than people on both sides realize. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You got anything else you want to say about president? Okay, cool. Then I'm going to move on to, uh, that will do it for news for us. Yeah. So let us go ahead and move on to, uh, Galatians and come follow me lesson for this week. Derek, I know you have a lot you want to say, um, you know, about Galatians. So if it's okay with you, I would like to share my insights first. Yeah. Feel more than free to build upon those if you'd like, but I already know that what I have to share is going to be peanuts compared to what I know you got to say oh, about no. this. And you have a lot <laughs> you have a lot of good things I, to say. I appreciate too. it. Yeah. I appreciate it. But um I'm really looking forward to actually hearing how you how you build on some of this stuff. And I'm gonna work a little backwards. I'm I'm going to start in Galatians chapter five. So uh, let's let's talk about uh what's happening here. Uh Paul is talking to uh, the the Galatian saints because they're being led astray by false teachings. And uh, one of these teachings is that circumcision is uh, necessary for salvation, uh, as well as other traditions of the, of the law of Moses. And uh, Paul is calling traditions like this, the yoke of bondage in verse one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just found that language very curious. Why does he use that language? And it seems to be that he's calling uh, this, the yoke of bondage because they were preventing the saints, like these laws were preventing the saints from focusing on the law of Christ. And we've discussed the law of Christ many times on the show, like it being to love God and to love man. But I thought to myself as I read this, how not unlike today that we have traditions in the church masquerading as doctrine slash the law of Christ, while ironically Mm -hmm. keeping us from actually embracing the law of Christ in full. Like we just barely talked about this a little bit. You know, Elder Pullman uh, of the 70 once said that sometimes traditions, customs, social practices, and personal preferences of individual church members may, through repeated or common usage, be misconstrued as church procedures or policies. Occasionally, such traditions, customs, and practices may even be regarded by some as eternal principles. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see that so often. We see how often that works toward the detriment of people on the margins. Um, you know, in recent memory, I'm thinking about women. I'm thinking about people of color. I'm thinking about queer folks. Like, that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And again, we've just talked about that. I don't got to say any more about that. But uh, our history is full of fallacious fashions that have endured a long time. You know, prophets have conflated things as minor as uh, like the hemispheric model for the Book of Mormon's geography and things as major as the priesthood and temple restrictions on people of African descent with actual church doctrine or official positions. You know, we're still recovering from the damage of the priesthood and temple uh, ban. And uh, it's been 41 years since we've ended that whole thing. But we are Mm -hmm. still having issues. I went to church, you know, just three months ago and heard somebody affirm the idea of divine 
authorship when it came to uh, the priesthood and temple bans. 41 years after that, that is, that is not insignificant. Um, and, you know, people, again, are doing that under the guise of church doctrine. And they've been doing that for 126 years. They're still doing that today. So, uh, like us, Paul knew what kind of damage conflating tradition and doctrine could cause so he's correcting it in this epistle lest the saints enact their bigotry as doctrine like we've seen not so unrecently um well, one more thing i find interesting about this whole thing is that when bruce r mcconkey described what was happening to the saints in galatia well he described what was happening to the saints in galatia as apostasy which is a pretty strong word yeah uh, th- this is actually what he said about the saints and uh, about the galatian saints He says, uh, Galatians is thus written to people who are losing the true faith, who are adopting false doctrines and ordinances, who are being overcome by the world, who are commingling the dead law of Moses with the living word in Christ. (laughs) I like I love Bruce Harbour Conkey for the strong language that he chooses to use. Um, But that begs some questions that I'm not sure I want to get into right now. But that was just one thing Mm -hmm. I found super interesting and uh, wanted to kind of put a a button on this particular issue uh, with regard to people embracing dead laws or traditions, social, cultural practices as the law of God. Do you want to say anything about that, Derek? Yeah, well... I want to just back up and and maybe remind our listeners sort of what the whole setting of Galatians was. So we had some Gentiles in Galatia who were taught by some other traveling teachers that they needed to be circumcised if they were male and they needed to obey the law of Moses, including eating kosher and keeping the Jewish calendar feasts and holidays and all that stuff to basically to live the commandments of the Torah as uh, as Jews. Mm-hmm. And there was a provision in within Judaism for Gentiles to become Jews. That, yes. that was fine. So, yes. right? And so there were basically these people who were saying that in order for Gentiles to be Christians, they have to basically be Jews first. Mm. Uh, and that's the only way to be part of God's covenant people is to literally do what God's covenant people have done for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. And circumcision was the heart of this dispute but it's not the only point uh, it's just the most prominent marker that they uh that they talk about in galatia uh, that paul talks about in galatians mm. and what's interesting about this is paul um, this is one of paul's most passionate and almost angry letters i'm glad you used that word because that is something i noticed throughout my reading of galatians was this definitely seems to be paul's most impassioned a letter to the Galatians, yeah. or, you know, in yeah. the whole of the New Testament. Yeah. I mean, there are parts of Second Corinthians that could almost match oh, yeah. this in passion. Certainly. But this one is, from the beginning to the end, full of Paul's passionate plea on behalf of these Gentile believers in Galatia. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who were in a um, marginalized position, a, a disempowered position, where we, we had people saying, look, uh, this was really before... Gentiles ha- were in basically dominant in the church. Mm-hmm. There were people here who had more authority and more power coming in, even with uh, apparently apostolic authority. They said, this, this is what James is teaching. This is what Peter's teaching, you know. Mm-hmm. 
coming in and disturbing the Galatian Gentiles, saying, you need to now, and it, apparently some of them were starting to get circumcised. Mm -hmm. And Paul is mad about this because he's saying, if you circumcise yourself, you have completely misunderstood everything that Christ did for you. Mm -hmm. And I want to make the analogy to people today, and this is, this is tricky, so I have to talk about this carefully. Um, there are some people, so basically, literally, circumcision is asking someone to amputate a natural part of them themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think an, an anal analogy can be made with, with queer people in the church, whether we're LGB or whether we're trans, we're asked to deny or amputate an essential part of our identity in order to fit into the Christian body. Mm. And Paul would say no. He would, he would actually say a whole bunch of bad words probably too. He would call you foolish. He would call you wicked. He would basically condemn you to hell. Um, this is the strong language that he uses in Galatians to the people who are trying to oppress yeah. those who are in the vulnerable minority. And so if you look at it this way, we who are queer or trans are being asked to amputate part of ourselves in order to fit into the body of Christ. Paul would say if we do that, we're also condemned. Like this is the strong language in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, tell you that if you accept being circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Wow, that is actually more profound than people realize. And I would like to tie this into LGBT people who, under pressure from, from teachers— uh, it, within the church who are disturbing them and saying you have to either be celibate or you have to marry a woman if you're a man or if you're a man or, or if you're a woman you have to marry a man mm -hmm. uh, or if you're trans you have to live as the gender that you know that you are not if you do any of those things as an LGBT saint you are denying Christ I mm -hmm. just want to say that Yeah. in the most solemn way you are denying Christ like anyone who submits to these oppressive structures is it's a, it's the same as if you were in Galatia submitting to circumcision you have missed and messed up and misunderstood everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ what do you think <laughs> a lot of people say well well it's okay to make your own choice and there's this there is a sense in which had there not been oppression, had there not been uh, this vulnerable minority, people could have freely chosen circumcision. Pre people could have freely chosen to be not circumcised. They could have coexisted in a, you know, kind of like what's going on in Corinth. Some people can eat the vegetables. Some people can eat the meat. You know, just kind of get along, right? Yeah. But in this case, Paul is saying, this isn't, this isn't just like, you know, diversity. If someone is actively trying to force you to be circumcised that's different than if you just freely choose it because that's what you want to do mm. and we're in the state where people in the in the church aren't just simply freely choosing to marry someone that they're not attracted to they're doing it because they are pressed into doing it mm -hmm. by a whole bunch of social cultural and and allegedly doctrinal reasons mm. and what paul would say to them is you done messed up yeah. If you do it, right? <laughs> I was thinking about, uh, you know, as you spoke, the primary thing I was thinking about was what we learn about the creation in the temple. Um, 
and I'll just defer to some words that are actually used in our accounts in Genesis and in the and in uh, in the Pearl of Great Price. But uh, the purpose of our creation is to fill the measure of our creation, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like yep. for each one of us. And all I could think of when you spoke was that when we deny an essential part of our identity, we are not fulfilling the measure of our creation. We are denying. Yeah. We are denying an essential part of ourselves against which I believe is against the will of God, mm-hmm. against the will of Christ. And we are putting the atonement, we are setting it aside. We are setting the atonement as a thing of not, if we are not taking advantage of it to live authentically into what God has created us to be. Yeah. So if this is the way that we were born, if this is the way that uh, we have come up in this life and we deny the way that God has created us for the sake of you know doing who knows what, then... We are not fully accepting Christ. We are not fully accepting that Christ can can work in our lives. Now, people might be tempted or to say that, you know, when it comes to our vices, we should, uh, you know, actively work to overcome with those things. You know, I was born with certain vices. I got certain vices that I'm overcoming now, and I'm not saying that we should succumb to those things. Yeah, but, and neither does Paul. He actually goes on a list yes. of the works of the flesh. Yes. Like, he does not yes. support those things. yes. But uh, this is, you know, I can't change, you know, the color of my skin any more than people can change their sexual orientations, which makes me believe that God intended us to be this way. And therefore, we need to live fully and authentically in to that identity that God has given us, else we are not honoring him. Right. And that gets back to... um Chapter 6, verse 15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision benefits us. What matters is a new creation. Yes, like focusing on circumcision, like ideally, this is the Ideally, it point. wouldn't matter if you're circumcised or not. But when people are oppressing you and forcing you to be circumcised, then it matters, and then you have to not do it. Yeah. You have to not do it. When under a different circumstance, like in Corinth, you would be free to choose either one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I will go ahead on that note then to move on to uh, Galatians 2 because uh, some of my favorite language and probably one of my new favorite stories in the New Testament is found here. So Galatians 2, I want to talk about this little incident at Antioch where Peter visits the saints in Antioch where Paul was staying and he dines with the integrated church, the the Gentiles and Jews that are there. So uh, while Paul is there, or sorry, while Peter is there, some Jew, some Jew, some Jewish Christians showed up and Peter, not wanting to be seen eating with Gentiles, does something incredibly both profound and ignorant. Like he does something profoundly ignorant. That's what he does. And, and unchristlike because Christ was all about eating with people that people said he wasn't supposed to eat with. Right, right. And uh, let, let's just remember that Peter had received a vision to take the gospel to everybody. He received a vision three times that essentially told him, Peter, don't be racist. You know, he even acknowledged, and he affirmed when he met Cornelius, he affirmed that he knew that God was no respecter of persons. So we know that Peter knows better than what he's about to show us right now. Right, that's why Paul calls it hypocrisy. Yes, and I'm going to get there, I promise. Okay. Um, So anyway, let's just get back to this. Paul is dining with the integrated church in Antioch. And uh, so, you know, he's dining with both Jews and Gentiles. And then Peter sees some Jews approaching. And when Peter sees those Jews approaching, he excuses himself for fear of offending them. And in so doing, he offends Paul. Now, Paul confronts him in front 
of everybody, you know, at this point, you know. And he basically asked that the Gentile saints aren't good enough for him. There, there are a lot of interesting things going on here, and I just want to take a minute to go over each one of them. The first is the fact that Peter is eating with Gentiles, you know. In ancient Mediterranean society and many other cultures, the practice of eating with people meant that there was some kind of kinship or loyalty between those dining together. So that's one thing. The chief apostle, a Jew, he's dining with Gentiles, and that's a big deal, and basically communicated that the integration of the Jew and Gentile was proper and necessary in Christ's church. It was consistent with Peter's vision in Acts when he learned about, uh, when he learned about, the vision of taking the gospel to everybody with Cornelius. Peter was commanded to, in essence, stop being racist and take the gospel to everyone. He was commanded to diversify the church. So Peter knew that not only did God approve his table fellowship with Gentiles, but he knew that God wanted it. He knew that God ordained it. So to not eat with them would have gone against that vision he received on three different occasions. So then it really raises an eyebrow to see that when some Jews from Jerusalem arrive, Peter decides to bounce for whatever reason. You know, I don't, you know, we we can get into some of those a little bit later. But at this time, tensions between uh, non-Christian Jews and Christian Jews is probably pretty high based on the fact that the latter associated with Gentiles. At best, at best, Peter could have possibly left because he feared the greater tension his association with Gentiles might bring. And since his mission was primarily to the Jews, maybe he didn't want to damage, you know, his relationship with the Jews. Maybe he didn't want to damage the fragility mm-hmm. of the Jews. Um, I don't know. I'm just, that, that is speculation. And I want to throw that out there. But what I do believe, though, is that Peter did not act appropriately. Peter's actions cause the other Jewish Christians to follow him. Like, this is the real rub for me, and I think it's the real rub for Paul. Peter's actions cause the other Jewish Christians at the table to get up and follow him and effectively create a divide in the church. And Paul calls Peter and the rest of them out on their hypocrisy. Like, they all knew the truth. And I think what really gets to Paul, like Paul pathetically notes in this account that even Barnabas gets up and he follows Peter. Like Barnabas, you really messed up. You mess with Barnabas. Like Barnabas was Paul's right hand man at this point. Barnabas was the guy who helped Paul build the church in Antioch. Barnabas is Paul's boy. Like you mess with Paul's boy. And you know, the (laughs) fact that like the, the, the language that Paul uses in this particular passage where he cites that even Barnabas gets up, has a very et tu brute, uh, you know, feel to it, you know. Paul is clearly hurt by this whole thing, you know. Um, so, you know, he's like, I got to say something. Like, Paul has to say something at this point. Even Barnabas is leaving. Ba- Barnabas is basically one of the bishops of the church in Antioch. So, you know, he's got to say something. So, um, Peter, or sorry, Paul gets up and he calls the rest of them out on their hypocrisy in front of everybody. They all knew the truth of the gospel and uh, what that was. Paul had taught, and he's going to teach this in, in, uh, in the next chapter, that there's no male nor female, no Jew nor Gentile. And Peter, again, knew and had been taught at least on three different occasions this very truth. Their actions at this particular point were inconsistent with what they knew about the truth of the gospel. They were more influenced by their common racial identity than their new identity as brothers in Christ. And how often do we see that today? In verse 13, Paul notes that even Barnabas joined uh, Peter in this hypocrisy. So, you know, we just want to like, you know, we've already talked about that. But uh, Paul goes off on them, essentially saying, 
are the Gentiles not good enough for you? You'll only hang with them if we act like y'all. Like you say this earlier, uh, you've already said this earlier, Derek, like in order to be assimilated into the church, you have to deny an essential part of yourself. And Paul is essentially calling them out on this. You're saying that in order for us to have full fellowship with the church, we have to become Jews. We have to start acting like you. Like earlier, when you started dining with the Jews and Gentiles, you didn't have to forfeit anything. You didn't lose any privilege. You didn't forfeit any privilege by dining with the Gentiles. But now for us to associate with you, for the Gentiles to associate with you, you are asking them to forfeit their identity. That is not fair. That is not right. In fact, that goes against the very truths of the gospel that we have been taught, you know? And uh, this this merits a pause for a second because this contains a profound lesson to the saints that's super mm-hmm. relevant to us now. And I suspect, I suspect that these were sane and sensible people, you know, Paul, Peter, everybody that was hanging out with them. Yet when just a little bit of fear, when just a little bit of racial anxiety, just a little bit of motion, a little bit of conflict is introduced and they just lose all perspective over what nationalism and racism, the very things plaguing our nation today. Should it really surprise us, given our history, that conflicts and divisions occur because folks are more influenced by their racial and national identity than their than their Christian identity and charge? Not even Peter, the rock of the church, the chief apostle, the prophet and president of the church, fresh off visions and an actual association with Christ. Not even he was immune. Right. And that is worth that is worth mentioning, uh, both as a comfort to all of us normal saints, all of us normal people who let racism and nationalism get to us, that even Peter, the chief apostle of the church, even he fell victim to it. So I right. do want to just point that out in both extending grace to Peter, but also in making sure he is called out on this the same way Paul did. Now, before we get to Paul's appropriate response to Peter's hypocrisy, let's try again to defend Peter. Again, at best, since his mission was to the Jews, he could have been trying to be accommodating to those he was trying to convert. However, this is the equivalent of, and you know, this actually happened. This is the equivalent of a mission president switching out a black missionary for a white one so that an investigator would be willing to hear the gospel. That is not an accommodation for the sake of the gospel. That is a compromise of an eternal truth that all are like unto God. And it is in that spirit that Paul calls Peter out, which is also interesting, though not su- Surprising, given Paul's track record and proper leadership of uh, proper leadership principles. Uh, Derek, you pointed this out in our previous um, in our previous readings of uh, Paul's uh, letters that he doesn't really point to himself for authority. He points to the fruits of his labors. Mm-hmm. He points to Christ. He never points to himself. He never defers to himself when he is teaching gospel truths. And what he does here, I think, is really profound. He does not invoke his authority as an apostle or even a senior leader in Antioch to call Peter out. In verse 14, this is all he says. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, Paul appeals to nothing more than the gospel of Jesus Christ to call Peter out. He only defers to the gospel. He only defers to Christ. Paul based his rebuke of Peter solely on the standard that the Lord has set. And that is so profound. It, you, it doesn't require much to know right from wrong. It doesn't require much to know the law of Christ. You don't need to be in the upper echelons of church mm-hmm. leadership to know that something wrong is happening. Right. You don't need to be like a big leader or anything. You could be any member of the body of Christ and still defer 
to the standard that the Lord has set to acknowledge that there's something wrong, even at the highest levels of church leadership. That is huge. And I love that Peter, or sorry, I love that Paul, even knowing that he has all this authority as an apostle, even they, they just had that Jerusalem conference or whatever, right? Well, there is a dispute as to whether that had happened yet or not. Okay, either way. Yeah. I'm going to assume for now, if they had that conference, then Paul's authority was basically acknowledged in front of the entire church. He could have leveraged that, you know, for his actions at this point, but he doesn't do any of that. All he defers to is the standard that the Lord has us set. Now, the next point I want to move on to is the fact that he's calling Paul out in front of everyone. Now, given our knowledge of leadership principles, like we know that we're supposed to take people like when they mess up, we take them aside between him and me alone, and then you reprove with sharpness, but with you know, but with love. Yeah. That is the that is the principle. But we also have to consider what Peter just implicitly communicated by excusing himself from this table. He basically just told the Gentiles the lie that they have to observe Jewish law if they wanted association with Peter and the rest of the Jews, as well as salvation. Now, whether or not Peter knew that or not is irrelevant. Like that doesn't really matter. He could have intended well, but that doesn't really matter. The harmful, the impact of his actions is harmful. Now, this is how Paul and the Gentiles seem to take it as evidenced by the rest of Paul's words. But the implications of Peter's racism are so serious that the spiritual well-being of the Gentiles and the integrity of the church were at stake. Paul wasn't going to let the already marginalized be spiritually marginalized as well. Paul had to say something, even if it was to the leader of the church and even if it was for everybody, because the very welfare of the church depends on it at this particular moment in time. Everybody can see what is happening. This has to be corrected like right now. Otherwise, the Gentile church is probably not going to flourish, Um, or at least the church is not going to flourish among the Gentiles, rather. So Paul asks, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as the Jews? Like we've already talked about what that sense in essence means, but he's in essence asking, you know, why are you going to make us do like you, even though this is not a requirement? Peter dining with the Gentiles has already displayed his privilege of being able to navigate between both worlds as he pleased. But by leaving the table, he took away the Gentiles' ability to be Gentiles even. Like he took away their identity. They would have to become Jews if they wanted any kind of fellowship, any kind of kinship with the rest of the church, um, with the rest of the Jewish Christians. This smacks of respectability politics. Like we already know how that is for queer Mm. folks living in that world. We already know how this uh, works for uh, people of color, people having to adopt the respect, people having to adopt the dominant culture standards of respectability just to be accepted. And in this case, to receive salvation, that is a huge problem. Now, had this been allowed by Paul, it could have spelled the end of the Gentile church. Separation of the races would have negated the very truth of the gospel that Paul was preaching, that Peter himself had affirmed, and that Paul would again affirm in Galatians chapter 3, that there's no Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female. Now, uh, there's one more lesson I want to pull from this. Mm -hmm. Um, Paul talked back to the leader of the church with nothing more than the truth of the gospel. There's precedent, and I just want to make sure that this is out there. There is precedent for uh, pushing back against the leaders, for defying the leaders of the church over discrimination with no root in Christ's gospel. And I'm just going to say to the saints, do whatever you want with that information. Just know that you need to be armed with nothing more than the truth to push back against falsehoods no matter where it is coming from, even if it is 
in this particular case, the prophet, the president of the church, the chief apostle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Derek, d- is there anything else you want to, uh, that you want to point out in this story? Yeah. Or I mean, you, you really covered, covered that fairly, fairly thoroughly. So there isn't much that I want to need to feel like I need to add, but okay. I do want to say in verse 12 of chapter two, yeah, it talks up a little bit. Of, and I think you touched on this, his reasoning. It says he, um, he ate with the Gentiles, but when they, meaning the uh, people from James, came, he drew back and recused himself, fearing those of the circumcision. So the reason why he did this has to do with his cultural and social um, freedoms, right? Like he felt pressured by the situation to do this, not because he's, he was ideologically committed to the discrimination, right. but because he was pressured by his circumstance. Not that it's this excuses, right? Because there's no right. excuse. No excuse. But we need to understand what happened to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, other than that, I think that that there's a there's some profound implications here mm-hmm. for how we in the church navigate. Um, I want to go back to the very opening verse of Galatians. Okay. I've been reading a Tom Wayman's translation. Okay. He says uh, here. Verse verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So here he does name his apostolic authority. But what's interesting is he never appeals to his authority as an apostle to inflate his own standing. Right. He he is strongly claims that his apostleship comes directly from God, not through any other human. He claims this apostleship not for his own benefit, but to serve other people. When yes. he is an ally to others, he is deploying his privilege and his standing yes. in their service. Speak on it. Yes. yes. Okay. He is deploying his privilege in the service. Uh, that's what an ally should do, right? If you look at when Paul's own uh, authority was challenged in for, in Second Corinthians, he never says, well, I was ordained an apostle, so I've got this authority, so you need to get in line. He never makes that argument there. Yep. Right? He appeals to the fact that he's just a messenger. He's just the envelope, and he's pointing everyone back to Christ in Second mm-hmm. Corinthians. Here mm-hmm. he does appeal to his apostolic authority that it comes directly from God, from no one else, as a key point of, of appealing for and on behalf of the Gentiles yes. in Galatia. Yes. That's the only acceptable use of, the, of this sort of uh, authority that he, he ever deploys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So— um, the other thing about this is is to notice that this I- authority is independent of other human authority, yeah. right? He yeah. didn't get his his authority from 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 Paul, uh, from Peter, or from the apostles. He actually makes this point very clearly in Gal- in the first part of Galatians too. That no, I didn't get this from them. I didn't get this from you know. This is something that Jesus showed up. And gave me this commission directly. I got this directly from from God through Jesus. And mm-hmm. this did not come from any man. Which right. is also a point in his favor because these other people were claiming authority like, oh, I was sent from James or I was sent from Peter. I was, you know, I am teaching these things. That's what the false teachers were, were doing. Mm-hmm. So that's how he's sort of trumping human authority. And I think we who are queer in the in the church need to tap into what God has told us directly. Mm. We need to see ourselves a little bit more like Paul 
and a little bit less like those who uh, followed Peter. It, yeah. It, like more like Paul, less like Barnabas, right? Yeah. Going along with the flow just because it's easy and convenient. Yep. Yep. And I think Patrick Chang talks a little bit about this in his commentary on Galatians that uh, that we need to tap into our own connection with God and our own authority that comes directly from God. You know, Alma the Elder in the Book of Mormon, it's really ambiguous. The na- there's no narration of where he gets his authority. Mm-hmm. The way it's narrated is that he it comes out of thin air, right? And similarly with Prophet Joseph Smith, in a sense, that co- his authority comes out of thin air, directly from God, without any um, human of his generation giving him that authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. I want to talk about first... Uh, um, Chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Am I trying to persuade people or God? Or am I seeking to please people? If I am still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, one of the biggest things that the LGBT saints get is this idea, and our allies, right? The big, One of the biggest and uh, most ridiculous criticisms that we get is that we're trying to be people pleasers, that we're trying to to like make the gospel easier and and let people sin and let people in you know through watering down the commandments and the expectations mm-hmm. and that is absolutely not what we're doing that is the same charge that Paul got from his the false teachers who were oppressing the, the Gentiles in Galatia they were saying oh the only reason you're trying to not let people not force people to be circumcised is because you want more Gentile converts. Obviously, if you have circumcision as a, uh, as a, you know, think about how your missionary <laughs> work would go if you had this major requirement to become a Christian. And people were saying, oh, you're just loosening the standards to get a whole bunch of Gentile converts and, and you're just watering it down because you want to, you want to make it easy. You want to please these people. Mm. And Paul says, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to this right now. It's in in the uh, in the sixth chapter, towards the very end. He says, "From now on, this is verse seven, chapter six, verse seventeen. From now on, let no one trouble you, for I bear the marks of Jesus in my body." I think that's referring to all of the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, if there are any had happened at this time, um, the starvation, all this. He probably had scars. Mm-hmm. He probably had scars. He's saying, like he's he's saying, look, I'm coming to you with these scars. Like I am not about making things easy. I have done all this stuff and gone through all of this. I am not trying to please people. I am not trying to please people. And you can tell that that's that was probably one of their biggest arguments was, oh look, you're, Paul's just trying to water things down, and let people sneak in. And that's exactly what what people who support LGBTs, we get that. People are saying, oh, you're just trying to water down the law of God. No, we are trying to enforce the law of God. And and Paul makes that uh, argument himself in in Romans and in Galatians that he's not denying the law. He's actually upholding it and its purposes. Mm. Um, I like this idea. Let's talk a little bit about Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, okay. You know, I love what he says, and you've quoted it all, probably three or four times already. <laughs> Sorry for the redundance. But I'm just going to read chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. For you are all the children of God through faith, not through the law, not through 
um, these outward covenant markers like circumcision or, or keeping kosher or keeping the calendar. Right. Let me just p- pause and say part of the social function of keeping kosher wasn't um, wasn't just because it's like a health code. Part of how it functioned was to divide people, to keep uh, people who uh, obey the Torah in their own social group, right? Because if you can't eat together, that really changes things. And that, that gets to the heart of what was going on in, in Galatians 2 at the in Antioch. Mm. But anyway, so it says, For you are all the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. Verse 28, There is no longer a Jew or Greek, nor is there slave or free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there's something interesting here because um, let's talk about what's going on here. People make a big deal about male and female in the church, right? They'll say, well, there's male and female. And Paul is saying that there's not male and female, that there's something in Christ that transcends those categories and overcomes those categories. And I'm going to to just read the, the the Greek text of the first part of of Galatians 3:28. Ukeni Udaias Udehelen. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Ukeni Dulas Ude Eleutheros. There is neither slave nor a free person. And then he changes the rhythm. He says Ukeni Arsen Kai Thelu. There is not male and female. So it was neither nor, neither nor. Now it's not and. There's not male and female. And I think the reason he does this is because arsen kaithelu, male and female, is, is what we have in the Septuagint of Genesis 1 when it says God created the male and female. Yeah. So I think he, he changes up the rhythm, uses a completely different conjunction here to point this out as he is making a deliberate echo of Genesis 1, where Genesis 1 says God created them male and female. Here he makes it conform three Greek words to the way it is in Genesis. Um, now the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. He makes it conform because he's trying to now comment on Genesis and say, look, there isn't male and female we're all one in Christ Jesus. What happens to one happens to all of us. This is all we're all in this together. There shouldn't be this distinction of of roles. And let's let's look at how he's deploying Galatians 3:28. He's not doing this to erase the Gentiles. He's doing it to include the Gentiles. Right. And he only develops one of these three um uh, binaries here. He develops the Jew uh Gentile one, but he doesn't really expand upon um, the male female or the free and slave one right he could have written two other epistles completely about either of those yeah and that leads us to think like what is going on here like he is is deploying this in order he's not saying w- to ignore the fact that people are Jews and Gentiles he's saying look in Christ there's something bigger and we can have Jews and Gentiles together in Christ both on their own terms, Jews keeping their covenants and Gentiles um, keeping their covenants, which are not the same, but they're united by faith in Christ. Now let's back up and talk about Elder Bednar uh, for just a second. He was asked um, a question at some conference somewhere, 
It was this wasn't a prepared answer at all. It was completely off the cuff. Someone asked him about the place for homosexual members of the church. Now, of course, we don't use the word homosexual anymore, but that's what the question said. And then Elder Bednar said, let me change the question. I want to say that there are no homosexual members of the church. And then he went on to, to talk about this. And I think what Elder Bednar was trying to do, he was trying to echo Galatians 3.28. He was trying to riff on that and develop it. But in his off-the-cuff remarks, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't if he went back, because he's never said this ever again. I think he afterward realized that the phrasing was not the way he would have said it if he could edit it and, and, and do it. He um, If he would have said something like, well, there we don't, because would he? How would Elder Bednar say? Would he say there are no straight members of the church? If he would say that, then he's kind of okay. Yeah. But if he wouldn't say that, if he said, if he would, if he wouldn't say that there's no gay and no straight, if that's not how he would phrase it, then he's he's actually not in line with Galatians three twenty eight. Um, so that's kind of part of the the problem. And let's look at the function of Galatians 3.28 versus what Elder Bednar said, because they kind of say the same thing, okay, but they function in the environment in a completely different way. Because what, what Paul's doing is he's appealing to this, which could have been a baptism, a very early baptismal um, formula, that this is the, the liturgy that they had around baptism, that they would say this. And he's appealing to this as a source, uh, as, as a reason. But what, so what, Paul is doing is appealing to this slogan to include the Gentiles on their own terms, whereas Elder Bednar is using the slogan not to include queer people on our own terms, but to basically erase us. Mm -hmm. That's the effect and the function of what he's doing. He's basically centering the straight perspective and saying there's no um, gay members of the church. So even on the surface, you can say the same similar words that can rhyme with each other in their meaning. But they can have a totally different effect. And that's why I think when he realized all the pushback and all of the pain that that statement caused, plus it's so easy to take out of context right, and just say right. there's no homosexual members of the church. That that just sounds, when you say it by itself, completely false. Right. Because it is false, right? But he, what he was trying to say, I think, was to tap into Galatians 3.28, but the function of it ended up being very different. And I have to note that Paul is really being an ally here. He is himself Jewish. Yeah. And yeah. he's using his power, his standing as an apostle, as a Jew. He's leveraging everything he has to uplift and include Gentiles on their own terms without having them, without expecting them to live like Jews, without expecting them to amputate, a, literally amputate a part of their body in order to fit in. Right. And I right. think there are people here in the church today who are completely comfortable asking queer and trans people to do something they would never ask, mm -hmm. never ask straight or cisgender people to do, to amputate a central and essential part of our identity, how we move through the world. They're asking that of us, and they would never ask that of themselves, mm -hmm. right? right? And that's why all these analogies of like, oh, um, being gay in the church is just being like a single sister that just didn't happen to find someone to get you know didn't happen to find someone to marry mm. and that's not true it's not it really is not the analogy of a single sister 
not finding someone to marry is a gay guy just not finding someone to marry. That right. happens too. Right. That happens too. That is the direct parallel. Yes. You cannot compare these two things that have completely different causes, completely different solutions, completely yep. different effects. Yep. What we've got here is gay couples coming to the church who are who have found each other and say, let's get married, and the church says no. They would never say that to a single sister or a who single brother. Somebody. Who has found someone right. of the opposite gender? If they come, we would be happy, right? Yeah. So it is not at all the same situation as the single people who just don't find it, and it's also not the same as disability, right? right. People, the the analogy of a straight person with a disability that prevents them from being married is a gay person with that same disability that prevents them from being married. Compare God is the not same telling. Thing, God right? is not telling a disabled person that they can't have right. love if they find it. Yeah, like yeah. So so here's what's going on: is Paul. Paul would be mad today. I think Paul would be mad. I think Paul would be pissed. He would be mad. He would, he would have, you know, I think Paul is a lot like Elder Holland. <laughs> nice when he needs to be, but furious when he needs to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And sometimes Elder Holland, just like Paul, goes a little bit overboard with it. <laughs> but it's merited in this situation because what, what's happening is the heart of the gospel is being threatened. The centrality of Christ and the cross and what he accomplished. Yeah. The new multi-ethnic family that's diverse, that's created through Christ, you deny that when you mess up the, the this whole thing right here with, uh, you know, denying, it. yeah. It's just, oh, I can't even speak because it's so con- so messed up. <laughs> when you deny the ability to, of Gentiles or queer people or women or people with disabilities to function in the church on their own terms with their own dignity— and not trying to change them to be like the dominant. Mm-hmm. When you do that, you deny Christ. You deny what mm-hmm. he did, and you deny everything he taught and everything he stood for. Yep, speak on it. And that's why um, everyone who listens to this should go back and listen to when we talked about the contrast between First Corinthians and Galatians, because I basically said, I think this was in our second one, uh, when we talked about Galatians 12 uh, and diversity. I'm sorry, Galatians 12? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. <laughs> okay, gotcha. When we talked about 1 Corinthians 12 versus Galatians, I basically made the point that Paul's approach to a church depends completely on what's going on on the ground. Yeah. In Corinth, he said, okay, I get that there's differences of opinion. Let's just all get along and, and make room for each other, and it's fine. Right mm-hmm. Here, he doesn't say that. He says... Get those people away from you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He doesn't talk about church unity here. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk about, well, love just bears all. Th-. No, he says love gets get those people away from you. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to you can't take any part of the New Testament as some eternal nugget of truth that just plopped out of nowhere. You have to look at how it's functioning in the community that Paul or whoever wrote it is addressing it to. And I think that's where I think President Nelson could be informed by scholarship on the new testament because he takes divine law as these eternal truths that somehow just plop down and you can put a little pillow on them and a bow on them and embroider them in, into this thing and hang it up on your wall and that's not at all how paul ever deployed truth it was always occasional serving a practical purpose on the ground and you mm-hmm. can't separate these truths from the context and i think that's where people get lost people have this very um abstract understanding of marriage that yeah. it's a man and a woman and there's this eternal thing about it and and, and 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 yeah there is something eternal about it there but you can't just take that truth and use it and weaponize it as some abstract divine law that you understand perfectly for all situations all times that's mm-hmm. never how that's never how 
prophets and apostles worked. It was always occasional. It was always based yeah. on what people needed to know for this time in this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, I just love studying the Greek New Testament. I know you do, Derek. And I know you do. I had this thought, and I'm gonna, it's, it's going to be embarrassing, but I'm going to say it. I was okay. thinking to myself, I just wish someone would like put me on an island somewhere for like months at a time. I would just have the Greek New Testament, and I would read it over and over and over, and I get, would get to know it very well. I would basically get drunk off of it all the time and just in, infuse my, my entire life with it just because I just love studying the New Testament. And, and there's a big flaw with this. You know, if Paul heard about that idea, he would tell me I'm stupid <laughs> because the whole point of what he's doing is life in community. Mm-hmm. For me to go off and have this, this life of I just get to – because I just love I'm, – I'm almost addicted to the Bible. I hate to say that. But, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, I have to go look up this verse because I have a question. It's, it's like that. And, and I would just love to, to do it full time and, and not have to, you know, deal with eating or working or having a job <laughs> or anything else. I would just love to do this full time. But Paul would say that is so stupid because the whole point of the reason I wrote these letters is so that you could live in community with other people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And there are there are traditions of our fathers in our church today that are interfering with my people's ability to live in community. Yeah. And Paul would say something about that. Yes, he would. He would. Now, let me see what else I had to say about Galatians. <laughs> Because you thought I was done, right? <laughs> I'm not done. Derek's um, like, I'm just getting started. Yeah. So let's see. Let's talk about the fruits of the Spirit, okay? Fruits of the Spirit, okay. What in chapter Galatians are we in? Galatians 5. All right. So I think you, you maybe touched on this a little bit already, but I love how it says, for the entire law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, sir. So when people appeal to divine law and say that there has to be this ritual component of your parts have to fit a certain way, that's not in the law. It is and not. That's not about loving your neighbor as yourself, right? There's no way you can fit that framework in. Same with circumcision versus uncircumcision. That's his whole point here is that if you're not, you know, love God, love your neighbor, that's it. Mm-hmm. All of these like sort of ritual components – all these, um, all those things are not part of the gospel of Christ. He says for verse in verse 22, for the fruit of the spirit is charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Um, mm-hmm. Here, Wayman translates agape as charity, but it, it but we should agape yeah. as charity. Okay, but we should translate it more as love. I think. Love and joy, peace, all these things. That's the things that queer people bring yeah. to the church. Love, joy, peace. Oh, a lot of patience. We bring a lot of patience. <laughs> yeah, we bring you do. kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. I mean, we queer people who are remain in the church, we bring a lot of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the fruits of the Spirit. And these are the same fruits of the Spirit that in Acts 15 were used as the argument for the inclusion of of the Gentiles to begin with. How can we deny baptism to these people who speak in tongues and have these miracles and have all these outpouring of the Spirit? The same argument works here, and the same argument works um, in the lives of queer people. And Paul says it so beautifully, there is no law against such things. There is no law against love. No law against love. And the love between two men, the love between two women, the love between uh, people of various genders, there's no law against it. They should be held to the same standards mm. as straight couples. That mm-hmm. is so obvious. Like, mm-hmm. even if you have half 
of a drop of the spirit in you. You can see. It's totally obvious. There's no difference between queer love and straight love except in the eyes of people who have this artificial um, this artificial and completely arbitrary view that's based purely on bigotry. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to say about Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit. Gotcha. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, any, uh, I spoke a lot. I don't know if you have any reactions to what I said. I do, but I can table those. Like, oh. uh, the important thing is that, uh, you know, I just really like, I really like what you had to say, and I just, I'll just add my witness to it because I feel like that's the no, most. No, but I want to hear what you want to say. What did, tell me what you wanted, what you were thinking. I was just going to repeat more of what you said, Derek. Oh. You know what I'm oh, saying? Okay. Just, I don't have any special, anything special to say, but you know, maybe this anecdote of something that you've already brought up. Um, it was either one or two episodes ago, but I remember when we got our first one star review, and somebody expressed that they really appreciated the words that you had to say and your. Um, your knowledge of the scriptures oh. and you brought up how that was a consequence of your identity mm. in the Christian tradition. Yeah. Now one of the reasons, and you know, you know that I could be off for saying this, but a big uh, part of why the Gentile saints are able to enjoy their particular group uh, gifts of the spirit may have something to do with the fact that they were prepared to receive those gifts as a direct yeah. result of the identities they espoused, which is one reason why I feel like it's so important for us to be able to embrace people of all kinds and in all kinds of situations within the church. Because if we are to really be a global church, we have to be able to embrace everybody because everybody is literally going to bring not only a different uh, cultural and social perspective, but they're going to bring a different gift of the spirit as well, perhaps as a direct result of those identities they espouse. Mm -hmm. And it's not fair of us to excuse people especially when as you've already said a big part of Christianity is community we can't do this by ourselves yeah. and if we can't include everybody if we are struggling to find a way to include everybody then perhaps we should examine if we are living the law of Christ the proper way yeah well now I thought of two other things to add okay sorry so <laughs> in Galatians 6 Galatians 6 6 verse 2 it I says bear one another's burdens and in doing so you will fulfill the law of Christ now, this is the law. The law of Christ is that we must bear one another's burdens. So everything that you do in service of an oppressed people, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. Yes. And so why is it that the law gets deployed when you're trying to persecute gay people and say there's no gay marriage? But why don't we deploy the law to say, look, when you are not – you have a positive obligation to be an ally – to mm -hmm. queer people, to be an ally to women, to be an ally to people of color. Mm -hmm. You, this is not optional. This is you in the law. To. It's in it's our covenant. It's in the law. It's in our covenant that we have to bear, not just here, but also in, in the Book of Mormon. Yep. We need to bear one another's burdens. Mm -hmm. I love that because the thing that I'm going to do anyway is a commandment. Yep. Right? I, and yep. you get more credit for doing it if it's a commandment than if you just did it because you felt it was, you know, you wanted well, to do you, it. If you do it because, you know, you love it or if that's right. because that's who you are. And so I really wanted to say we're going to get to our our uh, our prayer role later. But let's talk about this, that that everyone she has an obligation to be an ally to LGBTs. It's not optional for a Christian. Right. right? If you are going to claim yourself to be a Christian, this is not one of those things. You have you to can stand just, up. You and have to. On Judgment Day, the books are going to be opened. And what you did for the least of these, yep. what you did for those who are hungry, yep. um, 
in prison, naked, sick, all of these people. That's what what what's going to be read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's going to be no one. The brethren aren't going to back you up. Christ isn't going to back you up if you say, well, I was just trying to follow the doctrine. No, they're not going to back you up <laughs> on the last day. They're going to throw you under the bus and say, you're on your own. you got to defend yourself and why you didn't help these people. Mm-hmm. Appealing to, to these doctrinal traditions, what you th- you know, what apparently are doctrinal traditions in our church, that's not going to help you on the last day. You are obligated to bear one another's burdens. And then the last thing I want to say is, Verse 13 of chapter 6. For those who are circumcised do not obey the law themselves, but they desire you to be circumcised so they can boast about your flesh. Mm-hmm. So I think this is what's happening. It, let's make the analogy to straight people. So straight okay. people want to make LGBT people stay in the church so that they can say, oh, look. They're here. They're here. We've yeah. got them, right? Mm-hmm. We've claimed them. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it. And here's the thing. They don't obey the commandments themselves, mm-hmm. right? All these straight people are sinning all, all over the place, mm-hmm. um, including not bearing their, uh, you know, one another's burdens. That's a big sin, right? Yeah, yeah. But here they are. These straight people in the church have major problems, and then they're trying to make queer people live into a, a mold that they would never do themselves, just so that they can feel better about themselves and say, look, I can boast that we've got all these queer people here in the church. Yeah. And they're here, and yeah. we've claimed them. Mm-hmm. That is that is an abomination before the Lord. Mm-hmm. Paul Paul points this out, but Big then time. he he centers the cross. I w- certainly will not boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world, the world of expectations, the world of of gender categories, the world of everything, the world of all that mess has been crucified to me, and I to the world. I am not bound by the world mm-hmm. and all of its categories and power structures. I am not. I have died to that. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision benefits us or matters. What matters is a new creation. I love this. I just love this, how Paul basically deploys every possible argument to explain to these people not to let others oppress you. Mm Mm-hmm. Not and what's interesting is he didn't have a letter to the to the to that we have. We don't have any letter from him that tells the oppressors you you got to stop oppressing. He basically tells a letter to the oppressed people, speaking to them, centering them, uplifting their voices and their dignity, saying, "Look, you already have the dignity that you seek. You don't need to ask these teachers for anything." Yeah. So yeah, now I'm done. <laughs> All right. Oh man. Until next week. Until next week. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that. Yeah, we're gonna be on it. Always gonna be on it. Thank you, Derek. That was some great stuff, man. I really enjoyed uh, this particular reading, and I love this discussion with you, man. Like this is uh, this is some great stuff, some great truths that we can take from the Book of Galatians. And I'm looking forward. I'm honestly looking forward to going to church this Sunday, or you know, next Sunday, whenever actual Sunday school is to see how the saints talk about this, see what the saints choose to focus on. Although we have general conference. Oh, dang, it's general conference. Yeah. Ah! So we don't get to talk about Galatians. We don't get to talk about Galatians? That will not do. Well, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it anyway. I'm going to talk about it. I'm bringing it up in my class, but oh my gosh, that is such a travesty. Yeah. All right, either way. Um, Now that we are done talking about Galatians for now, 
uh, let's go ahead and move on to uh, <laughs> move on to the prayer roll. And Derek and I just happen to have uh, the same subject uh, for the prayer roll. Um, <laughs> being that this has to do with a lot of LGBTQ issues, or this is primarily an LGBTQ issue, I'm going to defer to Derek mostly for this prayer roll. But uh, I'll just go ahead and lay out the groundwork for this. Uh, the name of this woman is uh, Kate Hefley Daly. Uh, she seems to be some kind of uh, local to St. George or Vegas. I don't know where she where she is, but some kind of local right wing radio personality, a la Glenn Ble- Glenn Beck or somebody else. I don't know. But um, anyway, this 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 woman, she felt compelled to get on Al Gore's Internet and post this diatribe directed to the LGBTQ community where she basically blacks out her whole bigoted bingo card like somebody when i posted this <laughs> when i posted this somebody said it's like she was playing bigotry bingo and blacked out the whole card and i couldn't think of a better way to articulate yeah. all that this woman had in this diatribe that she went on against the queer community yeah. it and was she thinks she's saying something clever right too, like right? that's the other thing about and this original. and you pointed this out there's nothing original or groundbreaking in what she has to say but she just says all of it like that's that's one thing that really got to me about this particular uh, post of hers was she said literally everything you are not supposed to say with regard to the LGBTQ community. So like ju- just a couple of things she does. She she dismisses the oppression of LGBTQ folks. She dismisses their voices. She victim blames, cites her proximity to queer bodies to explain that she's not a homophobe, misses the entire point of pride events, calls queer lifestyle a choice, condemns it in the name of Christ, insists that she's not anti-LGBTQ, just not pro-LGBTQ, while denying them humanity in the same breath. Like, that's that's just a couple of things that she does in here. Like, in her, and you know, one thing I do want to point out myself is that in her introductory paragraph, <laughs> she expresses that she feels that the struggle for gay rights is coercing America into do, doing something that they shouldn't be forced to do. And then finished it off with this gem. And I'm just going to quote it real quick. It's at the end of one of these paragraphs. America was never supposed to be about coercion. Like, oh, my God. I wanted to throw my phone when I read that. I wanted to yell so many obscenities when I read that particular thing. America was never supposed to be about coercion. Do you know what America was founded on? Like, are we are we literally going to act like America was not founded on the death and dispossession, dehumanization? And just, what she meant was America was never supposed to be about the coercion of people white on the people, top. yes, of people you know, on the top, yeah, straight white folks. Like it was never yeah. supposed to be about their coercion, but yeah, we yeah. can, we can dispossess, dehumanize, and kill and disenfranchise mm-hmm. all the blacks and browns and Native Americans who are here. We'll build the country on their backs, but we're going to make sure that this country is built for us. Like that's just in like the first or second paragraph, and I just about lost it. But it gets even better than or worse depending on how you're looking at it but she just goes off like um and you know again Derek you said this yesterday there's nothing new or groundbreaking about this but the fact that she's a somewhat high profile of the member of a member of our faith who felt comfortable saying this in public on social media is the thing that really got to me like it's not so much the things she said but the fact that she felt to say this publicly as a member of the church and that Paul just, should write a letter to her. Paul should write a letter to her, a whole epistle just for Karen or what? what sorry, Kate. Kate. She's a Karen, but uh, her name's Kate. Sorry. Um, but this whole thing just really let me know how far it is. We really have to go as a church because the fact that somebody 
felt it okay to utter these sentiments aloud in public and that people affirmed her, even some of those being members of the church, that was the thing that really got to me about this. But uh, Derek, if you want to get into the content of anything she has to say, like, let's just go ahead. Yeah, I like this. Okay, there's something really clueless about this paragraph. She says, I'm not sure what she's complaining about because no one's really interfering in her life. Right. Like, what do you... She's making herself out to be the victim because Mm -hmm. we're just... Asking to be treated the same way that straight people are. Right. Right. And somehow that's oppressing her. She said, but please just be honest. And this is addressed to the LGBT community. She Mm -hmm. says, dear LGBT community. Um, She says, but please just be honest about why you're having the events, the parades, the marches and the banners. You are not promoting diversity. What you truly want is everyone in your community to think of homosexuality no different than heterosexuality. That's the goal. Just finally admit it. Okay. We've been admitting it for 40 years. Since Stonewall. Where have you have, been? Th- th- there's no where hiding that. Where have you that. been? We have not hid that from anyone. Dude. We want to move through this country, to the, through this world, the same way straight people do. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow when we ask it, it's now a special thing to just get what straight people get by default. Mm-hmm. Like straight people can move through this country with a general acknowledgement of, oh, they have a place and their relationships are respected by law and by custom and by, um, by all these other things. And when somehow when we ask for the same thing, it's an agenda. An agenda. A right? whole agenda. And she's making it out like we haven't been honest about that's the yes my goal is to eliminate bigotry against my people it is i'm admitting it all right there's there's no hiding it (laughs) i've been doing this work for a long time i do want to eliminate all homophobia if that is what she has a problem with then she has a problem Mm -hmm. that's a you problem that's not us and my goal isn't just to like live together and have people secretly hate gay people my goal is to have no one secretly hate gay people mm. or, or openly hate gay people, right? So it's not a secret that I'm – and no, let me tell you the reason why. Mm-hmm. The reason why we have to change people's minds, not just change the laws to, to uh, prevent the outward behavior, is because all these straight people, a lot of them are going to have LGBT kids. Yep. Which is not, not, to, not to say one is better or worse than the other, but it's – but it's different. Like, for example, you could you could have, in a sense, two ethnicities just kind of leave each other alone, right? Theoretically, and just they hate each other, but they just don't hurt each other. But you would never have one born to the other one by surprise. I think there is a particular vulnerability when you have an LGBT kid born into a family that hates them, into a church that hates them, into a town that hates them, into a state that hates them, into a school and a neighborhood that hates them. That is different than almost every other marginalized minority experiences. About the only other analogy would be perhaps disability, mm. people born with certain disabilities. But then there's a completely other there, – there's a whole other – you know, that's, that's different, right? But because, because straight people will always have LGBT kids, there can be no truce. There can be no truce. The only victory is one – where we completely eliminate straight supremacy and homophobia. That's the only solution. Unless you can agree, get all these homophobes to never have a gay kid, <laughs> you have a problem here that can only be resolved 
by a thorough repentance of the soul of this country. Um, and that's, I think, the piece she misses. That's the piece she misses here. Mm-hmm. And that's why I can't accept even the least degree of homophobia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it will hurt someone somewhere. And it's not like we can coexist in like kind of like how I feel about um, – Let's see what's some some random thing that I don't like. Uh, I don't know. But pretend there's something I don't like. I can coexist with people, right? <laughs> but this isn't about coexistence. This is about a thorough repentance from bigotry. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is my diversity, is to change everyone's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my goal, is to change everyone's mind. Okay? And I just don't want to go, you know, I don't want to <laughs> go through every point where she got wrong because there's a whole bunch of stuff that she got wrong. And she hasn't actually listened to the alleged gay friends in her life. Yes. That, because yeah. they would tell you how they got fired from their jobs, mm-hmm. how they got beaten up mm-hmm. in school or at home, how they got thrown out of their houses. All experiences, by the way, she denies in the opening paragraph you of know, her diatribe. I've seen a number, you know, the, the, the rate of, of, of uh, uh, attempted suicide between gay and straight people, between trans and cis people. That needs to change, right? There are problems. There are... Uh, same thing with homelessness among our youth, our, our um, homeless youth, 40% of them are LGBT mm. when, when LGBTs are a, a, about 5% of youth, right? What that means is more people are e- either getting thrown out of their homes or they're not safe at home, so they have to run away for LGBTs than for straight people and, and cis people. So, like... Yes, this this is real. I don't know what kind of bubble she's living in, but she's not actually listening to her alleged gay friends. Again, she's in St. George or somewhere like that. Just yeah, she's in a place where too many people and she's are she could be her. where she could have gay friends that are cooperating with the oppression. And you know Entirely what Paul possible. said. You know what Paul said in Galatians uh, five and six about people who are cooperating with oppression. He says, "You have lost Christ. Mm. You've got you've lost it, right." Um, she's really centering her needs here um, and her fears and she's trying to make make herself sound good like it doesn't work though (laughs) but she's trying to make herself sound decent and compassionate and and level headed and she's not saying all this stuff like live and let live I don't got a problem if that's the life you want to live just the whole thing basically boils to Give me the freedom. Give me the ability to be apathetic towards your pain. Like that's what her plea. That's what this whole diatribe really boils down to. Y'all can go ahead and be gay, but don't make me accept it. Don't make me live with it. Don't make me, you know, don't make me accept it. That's basically what this whole thing is. Like, let's talk about this here. Um, Please stop also defining your entire self based on your sexual preference. It's only one facet of your life and not who you are. Blah, blah, blah. Are you so busy defining your life, entire life around your sexuality choice that you have nothing else that makes you who you are? Let's Bam. Talk about, let's talk about this. There's something really clueless about this. Yeah. Because, so, I don't know if you know this, but um, twice in my life I have lost my job because I'm gay. Mm. Um, both were, were were fairly good jobs that I needed, um, and and being uh, obviously losing those jobs make it make makes it hard to get another one. And this was in a state, Texas, where there is no non-discrimination law for orientation, right? 
and these these this happened twice and it put me in a very significant uh, uh, problem and let's talk about when this happened um I have a whole bunch of cool things about me right like I won awards as a teacher I um, was well respected by students by staff by everyone like everyone loved me everyone loved what I did um, all these other things like I had 10,000 other things about me that are more important and more positive uh, in their minds than the gay piece mm -hmm. but when it came down to my employment this one piece of me was the only one that mattered in the eyes of the administrators who got rid of me right the reason I'm making a big deal about it isn't because I want to. It's because the world does. Right. Because in the balance, all these other good things about me, all those other things she says, she says that I should care about, those didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, they matter to me, but they didn't matter in the eyes of the people who had power and right. privilege right. to get rid of me. Mm -hmm. The only thing to them that mattered was this one thing, and not all of the good things in the world balanced it out. Mm -hmm. That's why she's wrong. And that's why we have to make a big deal about this. Not because we want to. Like, I would love to have never had a world with homophobia, right? Fine. Right, if right. she could magically get rid of homophobia, I wouldn't have anything to be proud about. Mm. Literally, right? <laughs> There's, you know, I would, I, I would love to get to the point where being gay is just as boring as being straight. Right. But that would mean full equality. Which we don't have yet. Correct. And so she's completely d didn't do her homework. She didn't do the whole listening thing. She didn't do the whole laying down her life for those who are uh, her privilege and her power. She didn't do the whole uh, Philippians one nine thing that talks about love. I pray that your love might abound in more knowledge and more insight and discernment. Mm -hmm. She didn't do any of that. Um, and I don't think she has a thorough enough knowledge of the scriptures either. Right. But I probably would say that about a lot of people. <laughs> so that's yeah. not really fair. But but she does not seem to be infused in a Christ-like life. Even though she claims to be trying to follow Christ. Right. So, yeah, that's probably all I want to say. There's more There's more I could say, but we should yep. just pray for her. There's a lot more we could say, and you're right. Uh, we, should, we should just pray for her because this is the kind of thing that we just— like, as the community of Christ, as the kingdom of God here on earth, this kind of thing is just not acceptable. And the only thing I want to say regarding this is that, um, and, you know, I think you actually brought this up to me yesterday, was that the only people worse than people who are outwardly homophobic or outwardly bigoted in any way are those people who are just... Either, either bigoted under the guise of compassion or simply passive about their knowing better. And what I mean when I say that is there are plenty of people who will read this and know that this is a problem. They will know that this is wrong, but they will not correct it. And I mm -hmm. thought about this a lot, particularly in light of what we read in Galatians uh, this past week, uh, particularly Paul's conflict at Antioch. I would hate to think of what would have happened to the church or what would have happened to those Gentiles that were sitting uh, to dine with Peter and Paul and Barnabas and them. Like, what if Paul didn't say anything? What would have happened to the work among the Gentiles in the church? Like, like I don't know. Uh, and I don't want to think about that. But uh, the, the whole point is 
that it is part of our Christian charge. It is part of our Christian responsibility to call this kind of thing out, to not let this persist. If we see this kind of thought pattern in our church, if we see this kind of thought pattern in any of our social circles, we have a Christian responsibility to acknowledge it and put an end to it. Like people, yes, they had their agency. They have, um, you know, their freedom to choose or whatever. But the least, the absolute least we can do as people who know better and who are Christians is to make sure that we at least disrupt the solidarity that everybody thinks the way this woman does. Like the reason that this woman thought that she could get away with saying this out in public is because one, there would be people around her validating her and two, people that did disagree with her, a lot of them wouldn't say anything. And unfortunately, the majority of the people that would disagree with her are not enough to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, shame her into silence. So I would just ask everybody who sees this kind of thing or who saw this kind of thing, you have a responsibility to acknowledge the wrongness of it. You have a responsibility to call it out wherever you are. That Mm -hmm. is your Christian responsibility. Yeah. That's all. And I just want to add, if she had posted something like, well, I hate all the gays, they should all die. That would be, of course, wrong. Absolutely. But I don't think it would have the same impact as this statement does because this statement has enough of a like there's a few like misleading scraps of love she's got like a lot of qualifiers throughout the whole thing which is why it's so long she needs all these qualifiers to mask the bigotry because i think i think what she did is more dangerous than i hate the gays they should all die because that really wouldn't have much of an impact Mm -hmm. no one would take it seriously the people who believe it already are lost and no one would really i mean it's still wrong right mm-hmm. and it still could hurt someone who who saw it but it wouldn't have had the same it wouldn't be as dangerous as this because what she's doing is much more um seductive into getting people the wrong way just like the teachers and the false teachers in galatia right right they they probably had a snazzy message they 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 had their talking points too and and that's exactly what she's doing here. She's she's twisting and distorting. That's actually what Paul says in Galatians one. I didn't even get to it, um, but Galatians. So most here's another thing about the impact of of Paul's letters is almost all of Paul's letters follow the exact same formula. There's this like opening line with Paul and the senders, and then ah yeah, the, the people who uh, receive it, the recipients, and then there's a Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving yes. always comes next. There is no, no Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving in Galatians, in Galatians <laughs> where where he would have where. OK, so they would have been sitting there in, in the Galatian house churches and someone would be reading to them. And people were going to get to the point where it says, well, I thank God for you at all times and all places. And all. he doesn't say that. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. Right. That's, out the bed. that's where they right would have been the expecting the Thanksgiving and the prayer for, for them. He says, I am astonished, you know. And that they're twisting and distorting the gospel. Yeah. And he says, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one we have preached, let him be accursed. Mm-hmm. Anathema esto. Let him be accursed. Basically, you are condemned to hell. Yeah. This I, really speaks to the severity as well of transmogrifying God's law to say some stuff it doesn't yeah. actually say. And uh, the fact that the biggest instances of this are in instances where people are discernibly angry. 
like is pretty significant. Arr. Like they're discernibly angry about this. We saw this with Jesus in Matthew 23 with all mm-hmm. the exclamation marks. We see this with Paul who's not even pausing to give thanks. He's just going right in to condemnation or at the very least just saying, I'm astonished. This is appalling. Yeah. Like, this is the only letter from Paul that has no thanksgiving. Yeah, only letter from the Paul that has letter, no thanksgiving. Yeah. Again, for the reason because people are too busy using God's law to deny people justice, to deny people love, to deny people opportunity to have fellowship with Christ and salvation. That like, That's significant. Yeah. So let's go into the creating Christ-like change. Oh, yes, sir. So, uh, Derek, what you got for us today? So this one might sound like I'm not really putting any effort into it but what i want to say is that there's power in knowing the scriptures and you can change you can change an entire space by the by by that um i don't want to make it like someone who's a know-it-all or a a master scriptorian like automatically should have more authority and deference because a lot of people know the scriptures well well they just have all the wrong Filters, you know, there's a lot of people that know the scriptures well, and then they, they're awful people mm. um, and then use them to hurt people. But I think there's room for saying if you know the scriptures, it can do a couple of things. It can help give you a certain amount of defense and resilience, and then it can also help you change a space because when people realize, oh, look, you know what you're talking about. You are committed to the gospel. You have these points that can't be argued against. Um it can change the space. It really, even just one verse quoted in the right way, time and place, can change things. Um, and in terms of resilience and changing the space, that's something that helps me because people look at me and say, well, you've only been a member of the church for four years. I have 4,000 years of scriptures in my head, things that have sustained God's people for generations upon generations upon generations that gives me this collective memory. It's kind of like you've got this idea of climate, which is the overall uh, long-term stuff, and then you've got the weather that can really change day to day. Mm -hmm. So knowing the scriptures helps you have an understanding of the climate that allows you to weather the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, Nicely done. Yeah, so these fluctuations from day to day, like, like Nelson's talk. I'm not intimidated. I'm fully undaunted. I'm not discouraged at all by Nelson's talk. That's the weather. Because that's what happened today. It will be gone and you know, peop- it will be you know, outdated in 5 years and forgotten in 10. It really will, you know. And I'll still be here and the stories of God's people will still continue. But those things will will drift away. For example, like I know the exile literature. I know people calling out for God saying why did you destroy our temple you promised us this land why are we you know taken into Babylon all of these things knowing those things helps me not not have to uh, take personally all of these little blips of the day it's just it's just so many and I think this this is can, can be helpful for people in terms of um, for example we've had changes in our temple uh in our in our ceremonies in the temple recently and that disturbed a lot of people but if you have this whole thousand year collective memory in your head you realized oh i'm fine with changes in the temple because i remember that we did animal sacrifices in the temple and then we didn't i remember that uh circumcision was one of the ordinances and now it isn't 
you know, things change. I remember back when the Passover feast was this major thing with lamb, and now it's the sacrament. You know, things change in their outward form. The, the Christ that they're pointing to is, is the goal. And depending on what people need for a certain time and place, these ordinances will change. And they will be adapted, and the, the, the truth that they point to will always be eternal. But having this sense of this collective memory of the scriptures for thousands and thousands of years in your head allows you to navigate the news so much better. Mm. And in terms of a practical suggestion, think about just one verse that you can memorize and take to heart um, that can help you, uh, that means something for a particular concern that you have. Like it could be something like that in, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor fee, free, male nor female. Like you can just say that, and it can change the whole room. You know, and it's good to have it memorized because you don't want to have to stop and like look up a verse. You can actually deploy that when guided by the Spirit, when you're ministering to someone, when you're comforting someone, when you're responding to someone. I think having a knowledge of the scriptures is so important. And in fact, this is what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 in the confrontation with Satan. He deployed the scripture for every one of the temptations that Satan gave. Jesus fired back with a memorized scripture. Mm. I think that's, that's very powerful. And, of course, Paul, we didn't even get to how he used the Bible, but he used the Hebrew scriptures um, especially in his talk, talking about Abraham, talking about the covenant. He used these things to make his argument, and I think we have power when we do the same. Um, we have, there's just, it provides so much of, people wonder what my magic trick is for being able to be gay and intellectual and feminist in the church and not ever shed a tear. I have never cried due to any homophobic anything in the church ever. Like, I have never done that um and the solution is that i know the scriptures i hate to boast but like 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 paul if i boast in anything i'm going to boast in the cross of jesus and what jesus has done mm -hmm. that's my goal and knowing the scriptures especially the new testament is probably the biggest uh interesting thing about me the gay the gay piece is actually kind of boring <laughs> but i think having having uh, the knowledge of the scriptures, I would not be able to, to survive even a day in the church without knowing who I am better than those around me know. So that's, uh, that's it for creating Christ-like change. And I think just having that attitude changes the whole room. I, we've talked about this before in one of yeah. the segments. Yeah, It's not just about changing you to have more defense. It's about your attitude can change the whole room because it changes the social cues. It changes... Um, what people within that space can reasonably know, and people will look to you to figure out how to treat you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it works, and yeah. it creates change. Like Absolutely. you've seen this, yeah, in every firsthand, yeah, firsthand, both myself and with Derek, yeah, watching him navigate spaces, yeah. But anyway, great, great stuff, Derek. Yeah, Thank you for stuff. saying Thanks that. Thanks for talking with me. I yeah, love. Absolutely. I'll see you next. See all of you next week. Next week, guys. Take care. Okay. Bye.